You are listening to the sermon podcast for Salem Presbyterian Church in Winston-Salem. Thanks for listening. To learn more about our church, visit salempresws.org. That's salempresws.org. We believe preaching is best when experienced as part of the larger drama of God's people gathering. Something spiritually unique happens when God's people are together. We meet each Sunday to let the liturgy shape us, to hear preaching, and to take the Lord's Supper. And these acts are more robust when done together. Join us Sunday evenings at 5 p.m. in downtown Winston-Salem at 600 Holly Avenue. to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. 
And he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when the day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Peter searched for, or after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord, and having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace, because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes, took his seat upon the throne, and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, the voice of a god and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down, because he did not give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. This is the word of God for the people of God. Uh, I was I was uh, an atheist until I was 21, and the first uh, Christian song I ever heard, well, I, was, I was still an atheist at that point, and the first Christian song that I'd ever heard, I didn't even know this was a genre, like I didn't know this was out there, but um, it was by Amy Grant, um, and it was called Angels Watching Over Me, and I bet a few of you have heard that song, um, and um, it was baffling, it, it was very sincere, not like the music I was used to listening to. It was, uh, had, had an innocence to it. It was very pure. And I remember just, I, I started to cry. I, don't, I really did not ever cry. And I started to cry just thinking about um, just the reality of, like, the possibility of something like an angel that's out there. And um, just how this, uh, this idea in the, in the song, which is based on this passage. That's why I mentioned the song. It's based on this passage. And the song's idea that uh, there could be this force of good out there uh, that could actually drive out darkness and actually liberate people from prisons and um, deliver us from violence. I didn't really know the story, so I didn't realize how violent the story was. Um, But it did give me a sense that uh, there was this invisible realm out there somehow that might just be real and that it might actually be able to deliver this world from the kind of senseless violence that is going on today in our country and also in this passage. I mean, Herod, this King Herod, which we're going to look at in a second, first uh, he executed John the Baptist. This is the same Herod that, that asked for the, the uh, head of John the Baptist on a platter. So he's the one who did that. And then... He, of course, is also the one that mocked and then crucified Jesus. And he slaughtered James for no apparent reason but to please the people who were Jewish that were his constituents. In fact, he killed James first to make sure that they were okay with that. And once he found that that pleased them, then he went on to kill. He's going to kill Peter. And then when when Peter escapes, he has all the guards killed just because he felt like they were incompetent. And um, but then the church starts praying. The church is praying. And what I find so amazing about the passage is that the prayers, the mere prayers of this church um, are more powerful than basically all of all of the uh, 
resources, the military resources that, that Herod deploys to stop Peter from getting out. And that's what I want to look at. Um, I do want to look at Herod and the violence of Herod and the violence of any empire like Herod's. All these great rulers that are still around today. This is not the heart of humans. has not, not changed. So this is still there. So I want to look at that first. And then I want to look at the fact that uh, although that is true, there is this invisible king that reigns by the power of his people's prayers. He doesn't reign by means of an alternative kind of violence. His people don't take up arms to fight for the church. We're not called to do that. Um, we, we actually exercise our authority and our dominion through praying. And the, the, again, the prayers of that group of Christians in that home of, uh, of John Mark is more powerful than all of the military tactics of Herod. So I want to look at those two things. First of all, the violence of Herod. It says uh, that he laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. This was even before James. And it's a very powerful image that we're having painted by Luke here. Literally, like he didn't actually, it wasn't his hands, but imagine hands of somebody that are very, that are like covered in blood or something like that. Violent hands he laid on some who belonged to the church. I think the reason that he started doing this, he hadn't really done this till now. This is around the year 44. We know that actually pretty precisely. It's pretty much somewhere in the time, year 44. So we're talking about roughly a decade after Jesus was crucified. And for this last 10 years, Herod has been terrified of Jesus and it's just grown and grown and grown. Um, it's kind of like Voldemort's fear about Harry Potter, this, the boy who lived. And he's, he's always trying to kill Harry because he knows that's the one who's the greatest threat to him. And Herod uh, keeps um, doing all these things you know, to try to get rid of Jesus and his followers, and yet he keeps hearing the name Jesus is alive mentioned to him. So he thought he had crucified Jesus. Uh, his dad tried to murder Jesus in Bethlehem when he was born, and now 14 years later, and everybody's talking about how he's still alive. And so uh, if Herod can't actually wipe out Jesus, he tries to do the next best thing, which is to kill all the people who are talking about Jesus. So verse 2 says he killed James. To see whether it pleased the Jews. And then seeing that it did. He arrested Peter at the Passover. And I think he chose the Passover. Because that was the time um, of national uh, liberation. The celebration of the Jewish liberation. And it was almost intentionally in your face. To the, the Christians. Uh, that you think the Passover is a time of liberation. I'm going to take your leader. And I'm going to arrest him. And then of course he was going to take him out. The very day of the Passover. Which by the way is just coming up this week. So we're right in that season right now. And he was going to take Peter out probably on that day and make a big spectacle of the fact that he would have him publicly executed on the Passover. So we have this um, radically insecure man. Uh, This is a man that would kill family members who threatened him, who threatened his rule and his throne. Uh, Radically insecure man, yearning for attention and uh, creating this violent spectacle, which sounds very familiar. Uh, not just this past week, but I mean, the flags have been at half mass so much that I don't even really notice them anymore. Um, they're just always at half mass this year. And um, this is a man who, during a famine, he jacked up the price of grain, kind of like people did with toilet paper in, the, in COVID. But in this case, he was actually going to end up killing people because they couldn't get food. He jacked up the price of grain in a famine. And he did it partly to get all the merchants to come to him in verse 20 
all the people who grew grain. They came to him in verse 20 in his home of Caesarea, where he ruled. And uh, he had them come to him. He acted like he was mad at them. It was kind of a, a, a foe, you know, anger. He was pretending to be angry at them the way politicians do. So that they would come and, uh, and he could actually have them worship him. That was his whole goal in this. And so he gathers the people to receive uh, their adoration. And this actually event is, this exact event is, is uh, recorded in, by the historian Josephus, who's a Jewish historian writing at the same time. It is so interesting the way Josephus adds detail to this. And um, one of the details he adds is that the robes that he put on um, were entirely made of silver. And then when the light shone down on Herod as he was delivering his oration, it was like he was shining like the sun, which was part of his intention. So in verse 21, it says he put on royal robes. And we know from Josephus they're made of silver. And he took his seat on the throne and he began to deliver an oration. He probably couldn't have gotten anyone to listen to him. He's probably a terrible speaker. But if he could get all these people to come and uh, want to sell him grain, then he could have this captive audience, literally. And part of what the empire always wants, and these violent people like Herod, what they always want, is they want um, to appear to be dominant and invincible. And that's one of the the things that uh, evil does to us, especially violence, is it makes... It wants to make us feel small. And so um, the people cry out, this is the voice of a God and not a man. Verse 22. This is the voice of a God and not a man. And that's what, that's what it sometimes feels like when evil speaks into your mind like the voice of a God. Like it's God. Like the darkness is stronger than the light. And so I just want you to think about where in your life... You hear the voice of evil as if it was the loudest voice and as if it was the, had the final word. You know, does evil have the final word, word in this world? It's always going to try to get really big and kind of intimidate you. I thought about in the, in the Lord of the Rings, one of the ways that uh, evil, uh, Mordor and Sauron, the, the, essentially the Satan figure in the Lord of the Rings, the way that he tries to intimidate uh, the people who are trying to fight him of Middle Earth is he has these creatures that are like flying dragons and they have these giant wings and uh, they're called the Nazgul and they, they fly over uh, like Gondor, the capital of the humans and they are huge wing, like the shadow passes over uh, Gondor and they make this hor- horrific cry, this eerie like shrieking and everybody just cowers and like they don't even want to fight anymore because of the huge black wing of the Nazgul. And that's, I think that's, that's what evil powers are always trying to do to us. They're trying to be ultimate when in fact they're, they're actually little tiny cowards. Um, that's what Herod is. You know, he's, he's insecure, he's terrified, he's desperate for praise. And yet he's trying to put <clears throat> Peter behind bars and put him in a prison and put four squadrons of soldiers to guard him so that he can look like he's the strong one. So that Herod can look like he's the strong one. I was on vacation recently at the beach. And at the beach, I usually um, can sleep pretty well. That's one of the places where I sleep really well generally. Just so relaxing, the sounds of the beach. And um, there were um, people that I loved who were not doing well. And I heard news of both of those people not doing well at all. 
and uh, it was that very day I heard that. In fact, that night. And so even though I was at the beach, I, 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 my heart was like racing, felt very anxious. And I remember the thought I had was, evil looks like it's somehow bigger than goodness. That it, it felt to me at that time like darkness was going to win in both of these situations. And I saw no way out of them. And I actually called Margie and said, you've got to pray with me because I, um, I just keep getting filled with anxiety and I, my thoughts are racing and I can't fall asleep. So she just, she prayed um, and I had the phone on, um, on speaker and just put it next to my ear and just fell asleep. That's what put me to sleep was her prayers, praying that Jesus had ascended, was at the right hand of God and was reigning over the world. And that's kind of what allowed my heart to finally be at rest. So in spite of the violence of the empire, you have the prayers uh, that are lifted up to the king of kings, who is, who is greater than all evil, uh, who took all evil upon himself and said, do your worst. And in doing so, he defeated evil. So I want to look at this king who rules the world through his people's prayers. Peter has got to be about to give up because he knows the timeline and the countdown You know, the clock is ticking and he knows uh, it's getting near the end, that he's basically dead man walking. If you've seen that movie, you know, that's the phrase they use when someone is walking down death row. He's he's essentially dead man walking at this point. But it says in verse five, earnest prayers were being made by the church. And that's like the turning point in the passage. You have all of Herod's power and violence and weapons. But then you have that one little phrase, but earnest prayers were being made by the church. And all of that evil uh, is the counterbalance. The prayer is is much weightier, is much heavier. Just our praying. What we just did uh, seems so foolish, so weak, uh, so unthreatening to empires, but is actually uh, much more powerful than all of Herod's military resources. So notice in verse 6, on the very night Herod was going to bring him out, God loves to do this. I don't know exactly why he does this, but he often will not deliver us until it's the very last hour, the 11th hour. He loves to do that. Um, Paul says, while we were weak, at just the right time, Christ came and he liberated us. While we're weak, at just the right time, we're about to give up. That's when God comes. Verse 7 says, behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him. And these are the signs and wonders of the king where I've been talking about how in the book of Acts over and over again, you have this other dimension breaking in kind of like I compared to stranger things and the portal and the upside down. And like it's like the upside down is coming in through the portal into this world and these larger realities. You know, if we're a flat world, it's like these 3D realities are impinging themselves upon our our world. And uh, when that happens. You have what the, the Bible calls signs and wonders. It doesn't use the word miracles as much. It's more like stretching reality to the breaking point. So it's not necessarily breaking a law of nature. It's just like this is extremely unusual and amazing. Signs and wonders. In the book of Daniel, chapter 10, verse 12, when Daniel's in big trouble, uh, God sends an angel. And Daniel's surprised. Everybody's surprised when an angel comes. Peter's surprised. And Daniel is told by the angel, your words have been heard, your prayers have been heard, and I have come because of them. And how many angels are sent, you know, when we pray? We don't know. I think most of them don't actually make an appearance. They're just there. And I don't know how God operates his world 
through this massive bureaucracy of archangels and angels. But they're everywhere. Um, they're watching over us. And here's one of them. And whenever they come, there's some very similar characteristics. It's one reason I don't think they're being made up. I think this is real stuff. Um, they're always just filled with light. Always just shining light. It says, light shone throughout the cell in verse 7. This dark prison cell. They would have had no windows. This would have been down into the ground. Absolutely no light at all. And all of a sudden, it's kind of like when you um, open up the blinds. Especially in a hotel, there's really thick blinds. And you just open up a crack and that sunlight just comes pouring in. Like one little narrow band of sunlight just comes right down the middle and hits your eye. That's what happens here. Light just pierces into the cell. That's one of the common characteristics of an angel. And another one is that when a person encounters one, they're like, they're terrified. They don't really believe what's happening. They're completely disoriented. And that's true of Peter here. And I love in verse 7, it says, the angel hit Peter on the side of the head. It's like, get up and let's get going. It reminds me of our children in the morning trying to get them out of bed when they're little. Uh, you've got to sometimes kind of hit them, you know, to get them. I'm um, not very hard, but you know, just kind of <coughs> bop them. Bop is probably the right word, not hit. Um, but it's like the angel's trying to get Peter out of bed. And he tells uh, Peter in verse 8, okay, you need to dress yourself. And you've got to put on your sandals. And you want to wrap your cloak around you. And, and then you need to follow me. Like these really precise instructions. It sounds like a parent once again. And this is one of the most detailed, really coolest rescues in the Bible. Uh, this is probably why Amy Graham wrote a song about it. Verse 10 says they passed the first guard, and then they passed the second guard, maybe around another corner. First, actually, the, uh, the chains fell off. Didn't even mention that. So the, these, the chains, the, the shackles just fell off of their own accord. Something happened, signs and wonders. The metal uh, just separated. The, the whatever held them together just fell, fell away. Something happened in the nature of the metal. And then they come to an iron gate after the first guard and the second guard. You know, he could have just teleported Peter, could have teleported him right there from the jail cell into the house of Mark where they're praying. But God doesn't do that. He loves these rescue stories. So then they come to an iron gate and they, Peter's like, oh, we almost made it. You know, I had the shackles fell off. The two guards we got past, they fell asleep, maybe. And then it's like it's like the angel does one of those Jedi things in Star Wars where they just wave their hand. And the door, it opens right up. The gates fly open of their own accord, it says in the Bible. Of their own accord, they just fly open. So it's like this great scene from, you know, Mission Possible, something like that. And yet, Peter, in verse 8, he thinks it's a dream. He thinks it's not real. He can't believe it's real. Because signs and wonders are too much for him. They're too much for us. Because that other reality, that other dimension of reality is is so foreign to us that when it happens to us, we just barely can believe it's happened. God is answering all of these prayers with signs and wonders. You have the angel itself. You have the heavenly light that comes in. You've got the chains falling off. You have the two guards, the self-opening door. And yet, not until the very end, in verse 11, does Peter say, oh, now I know the Lord has rescued me. You know, what? the angel was not enough. The light wasn't enough. The chains weren't enough. Not till after the self-opening door did finally Peter say, now I know this is real. Now I know that I've actually been rescued by God. And the rest of the church is even more humorous. They're, not even, they're, they're probably worse than Peter. I mean, they're the ones praying. Peter didn't even know they were praying. But you can imagine the church in this big prayer meeting with uh, very soft, serious voices, very whispery. You know, the way we pray. It says many were gathered 
together and pray in verse 12. And Luke is all about prayer. The book, the book of Acts is filled with corporate prayer. And I just love the way that Luke is willing to say, yeah, they were praying, but they really didn't believe what they were asking for. Because when Peter arrives, which is the very thing they're praying for, is for him to be let out of jail. And he arrives, and they completely forget what they were asking for. And the servant girl, Rhoda, hears that it's Peter. He's, he knocks at the door. He's knocking frantically, looking around, you know, waiting for Roman guards to come and arrest him. And the servant girl runs and hears him as he's calling out their names. She, she doesn't answer the door. She turns around, goes back to them, and tells them, Peter's here. And they say, you're out of your mind. You're crazy. And then she continues to insist, no, it's Peter. And they say, well, it must be his ghost. Because a ghost is a more reasonable thing to expect than answering the only prayer they're praying for Peter to be let out of jail. And it's easier for Peter to get out of jail than it is to get into the church. You know, God, is, God has done all the work to get him out of the jail, and now the church won't even let him in the door. And yet, Jesus is still reigning. That's, that's the beautiful thing, that the quality of our prayers are not the point. Uh, we could be falling asleep while we're praying, and God still hears the prayer. It's the fact that Jesus reigns through his people's praying, not the prayers themselves. We've got to be really careful to think that our prayers are powerful. Our prayers are not powerful. It's the Lord who listens to our prayers. It's very powerful. And we could say some really dumb prayers that we don't even remember. And I mean, rarely do I remember things that I pray for, sadly. Um, I have to write them down or else I'm not going to remember them. We're so clueless, so blind. But again, our incompetence just highlights the power of his reign, which is invisible and intangible and immaterial. There are no armies involved or else we would screw it up. If we had any power in his reign, it would be terrible. As the church has done at times, whenever the church has acquired power and military might, it has, everything has gone wrong. So his reign has to be through our prayers. And yet in spite of all of our unbelief and our falling asleep and our lack of concern about the answer to our prayers, in spite of all that stuff, in verse 23, this is the great contrast. I love how Luke does this. Herod was eaten by worms. But the word of God increased and multiplied. That's the great contrast in the passage. Herod was eaten by worms. Like he didn't just die, but Luke has to go on and tell us his whole body decayed in the ground, uh, decomposed, and was eaten by worms. All of us will be eaten by worms. But Luke wanted us to know that Herod was eaten by worms. But Jesus and his word and his message continued to increase and multiply. Because as intimidating as evil seems... As violence in the empire seems, it, is, it has nothing on goodness and liberation and grace. Again, at times this week, as I thought about what happened, and I think, I think this one hit really close to home because a lot of us know people in Nashville, and it was part of the PCA church, and we're a PCA church, and there are a lot of connections here. And so, you know, sadly, when Uvalde happened, I just didn't think about it nearly as much. Um, this week, I actually was somewhat clued into reality. And I just thought about how it was so heinous and random almost, and there was so much innocence going on around it. It was so premeditated and planned and drawn out, and yet also so normalized. It's out of the news cycle now, which is kind of hard to take, but it's, it's so normalized we, don't, we just forget about these things. And yet in spite of the seeming invincibility and intimidation of the empire, you had four squads of soldiers, you had these two guards, you had multiple sentries, you had the chains and the iron gates. I mean, Herod couldn't have done much more to deploy his troops to stop one little tiny man in a jail cell. 
And then on the other side, you have this group of half-believing people that are kind of praying. They are sitting still. They have no weapons. They're just sitting there. They're talking to God. It looks like it's foolishness. And yet, who actually ends up winning? So when you get really anxious about the future of this world, when you start thinking that um, this is just going to keep happening more and more and more, when you think that our country is going to descend into a morass of violence and counterviolence, uh, think about the way God acts. Especially think about the greatest um, rescue of all, the, the greatest jailbreak of all, which Luke notes uh, in his very understated, very sly way. Um, in verse 4, it says, Herod was waiting, as I said, till after the Passover <clears throat> to bring Peter out of jail. And little did Herod know that the Passover always means there's going to be a liberation, because that's what the Passover was. And so Herod was not remembering his history that you don't want to wait till after the Passover, because when the Passover happens, that's when God acts. Because the Passover was the night that Yahweh took on Pharaoh. And uh, the great king broke his people out of Egypt with no weapons at all. They had nothing. They just took, they, they slaughtered a lamb, a little innocent lamb. Every household had a lamb. They would slaughter the lamb and they would take the, the lamb's blood and they would catch that blood and they would take a paintbrush and they would paint blood over the, the doorframe of their house. And that one little act of this weak little lamb and the, the life of the lamb painted over the doorframe and the angel of death passed right by every single Israelite door and, and destroyed Egypt and allowed God's people to be set free. So in, in this meal, um, we celebrate this great act of deliverance. Remember, we love these rascals.